Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 1937, a school teacher on the island of Maui challenged a group of poverty-stricken sugar plantation kids to swim upstream against the current of their circumstance. The goal? To become Olympians. They faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles. The children were Japanese-American. They were malnourished and barefoot, had no pool. They trained in filthy irrigation ditches that snaked down from the mountains into the sugarcane fields. And their future was in those same fields, working alongside their parents in virtual slavery, known not by their names but by numbered tags that hung around their necks. In spite of all the obstacles, including virulent anti-Japanese sentiment the late 1930s, by year three of their experiment, they'd be declared the greatest swimmers in the world. Still, they face the dawning of World War, cancellation of the games. And on the battlefield, they become the 20th century's most celebrated heroes. They were the three-year swim club. Their story is told in, by Julie Chekaway in her new book, The Three-Year Swim Club, The Untold Story of Maui's Sugar Ditch Kids and Their Quest for Olympic Glory. Julie Chekaway is the author previously of A Little Sister, Searching for the Shadow World of Chinese Women, the best-selling Creating Fiction. Her work has appeared in New York Times, Huffington Post, numerous anthology. She is reported for Morning Edition in This American Life. And her film is Waiting for Hockney. She lives in Salt Lake City with her husband and two daughters. Julie Chekowitz, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks. Thank you for having me, Tom. Uh, so you have a varied uh, career, including reporting for uh, NPR. So that's... Uh... Mm-hmm. I, I have had what I would call a patchwork career um, over the years. Um, a patchwork quilt, if you will. <laughs> that's right. That's um, right. Yeah. A lot of different things, um, and if we have time uh, here in this program, I'd like to talk a bit about Waiting for Hockney, just a fascinating story of the artist, Billy Pappas. How did you come across this story of the three-year swim club? You know, it's fascinating because that's always the first question that people ask, not just in interviews, but in my encounters with them when uh, I've shared the basic outline of the story. I think that underneath that question, how did I encounter it, um, is a deeper question. And it's a, it's a really significant question. And that is, how could a story of such significance have been hidden from us for so long? And how could it have faded, or how could it have faded from history and not been recorded? How is it that we never heard of it until now. Yeah, it's, it's just so fascinating, um, inspirational. Uh, those are the questions, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, some of the answers, um, as I've found myself uh, over the years trying to respond to that question, my first answer is often very concrete, and that is that in ni- sorry, 2008, I was working at the Salt Lake Tribune as a a features writer, as a staff writer, and it was a wonderful job. I was very lucky to have it. And at the same time, I was sort of recovering from having made Waiting for Hockney, which was a full-length feature film that maybe we'll talk about later. It was a documentary. And I was loving having this full-time job with a desk and a salary and colleagues. <laughs> and yeah. at the same time, I'm an inveterate storyteller, and I tend to take the long form. I'm much more a long form storyteller than I am a short form. Um, I've gone back and forth. So I was sitting at my desk, perfectly content, loving my colleagues, but at the same time pulled toward the idea that I should be also writing long form, a book. I was searching for that book, the way writers do, the way that people, even readers do, looking for that story that would just resonate with me um, and sort of fit me at the time, that time of my life. Waiting for Hockney was a a film about an incredible narcissist, (laughs) and I was pretty tired of that. I wasn't interested in focusing on a character or individual, uh, because these are real individuals, nonfiction. I wasn't interested in spending the next five years of my life, which is how long it takes me to do a book, roughly, 
with someone who was self-centered. One day in 2008, my agent, believe it or not, from New York, Eileen Cope, with whom I had worked for about 15 years, she called. I was sitting at my desk at the Trib, and she had news for me. Now, a lot of people think of agents as purely business people, people who are interested in negotiating for you, putting your book up for auction, that kind of thing, and receiving their X percent um, of whatever you do or do not make as a writer. Um, But Eileen is extraordinarily creative. She's the kind of person, I'd say a person before a literary agent, who scours the newspaper every day for stories. And she's always looking to match stories up with what I would call her stable of writers. She has a very small stable of writers. Very, um, very interesting woman. She does about 12 books a year. And she had come across the story somewhere, and we still haven't determined where in writing it was, but it was just this little snippet. And it went like this. In 1937, back in the 30s, Julie, um, I've heard that there were kids on this sugar plantation on Maui, poor Japanese-American kids, whose sixth-grade science teacher taught them to swim in the irrigation ditches, and they went to the Olympics. And I just about dropped the phone. (laughs) And I said, I said, "You're, you're kidding. And she said, and it's never been told. And I said, what do you mean? And we went back and forth like this for a while. And the story was so resonant um, and so irresistible. But I was dubious as to why it hadn't been told and why it sounded so much like legend. At this time, around uh, 2008, um, the book The Boys in the Boat had not come out yet. Neither had the book unbroken, both of which were bestsellers. The book that was quite formative to me and the kind of story that I was looking to tell was modeled more on Laura Hillenbrand's first book, which was called Seabiscuit. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, book. yeah, it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful book, yes. It's it's fantastic. And, you know, far be it from me to ever think I could be Um, a writer as glorious as Laura Helen Brand, but I saw her as a role model. Mm -hmm. And I saw that book and the depth of research and the joie de vivre of that story. Um, It just had a swiftness and beauty. And it was a story that she too had, you know, found that had been lost to history was sort of Mm -hmm. in archival materials. So when I heard the story of the three-year swim club, I thought, this is too fortunate and also too mythical and also too much like Seabiscuit to be good, um, to be possible. So I got off the phone of the Trib and began the process of looking for any extant materials that would verify and corroborate the fact that this story was true. And what I began to find was that, in fact, it was, and that the basic shape of the story, as it had been told to me that day, was was not legend. Mm-hmm. It was history. I'm, I'm very glad it's, it's coming to light uh, now. I wonder if you take us back to uh, 1937, this extraordinary man who's, you know, in retrospect anyway, he must have seemed very ordinary at the time, uh, Soichi Sakamoto. Who's teaching and and his swimming ability, as you say, doesn't extend much beyond treading water. But he had this he had this vision. He did. Um, you know, I think that's what's important about Suichi Sakamoto is that he was both extraordinarily ordinary, or excuse me, ordinary. Pardon me. And at the same time, he was ordinarily extraordinary. <laughs> he was a second-generation Nisei Japanese-American son of Japanese immigrants who had come to Maui to work the fields at the turn of the century, 1899. His father came over. And 
actually, he was a quite unusual child. <laughs> you know, I won't go far back into his childhood at the moment, but he was the sort of child and young adult who never really fit in himself and who always had a sense of himself as someone who needed to do something of value. I don't think he knew, I knew, I know he didn't know it was swimming because when he took his Eagle Scout swimming test, he, he barely passed the test. Uh, his instructor said of him uh, that it was really the most pathetic and tragic performance he had ever seen on this test. <laughs> but in 1932, Suichi Sakamoto was married, he had two children, and he had been teaching sixth grade science and some health classes at this very rural elementary school in Punene, Maui. And I hope we'll talk about Punene um, at some point because it's not the Maui maybe most people would know mm. from their vacations. At any rate, um, he was used to teaching the children from the plantation because the children lived in um, work camps with their parents all around uh, the school, 13 segregated work camps. He was not from the camps. His father had become middle class, had become a shopkeeper. And he, one day, one afternoon, he heard the sound of the children, hundreds of children, screaming outside the window of his classroom. He walked outside to find that the screams were not of joy or pleasure, but rather of terror. And when he went out, he saw naked children coming out of this irrigation ditch, screaming and running across the cane fields, pursued by one of the camp policemen, who was astride an enormous horse. And the horse was racing against these children, and the children were running. And it was forbidden for the children to swim in the ditch. And that moment wasn't the very first, wasn't, I think perhaps it was the first moment that Suichi Sakamoto began to awaken to a sense of purpose. He looked at the children and he thought that it was a terrible injustice that they weren't allowed to cool off in the incredible heat of the central valley of Maui, where the kids were 20 miles, if not more, and a day's walk or out, you know, hours and hours walk from the sea. A terrible injustice that in a place with no pool for them, a pool open only to whites, they couldn't just cool off in the ditches. And so he very shortly thereafter asked the powers on the plantation if they would allow him to slow the current, to, to stop the current by closing the valves in the ditch and allow the children to swim there for one hour every day after school. And the plantation uh, managers miraculously said yes. And that was the beginning. I don't think he knew it, but that was the beginning of his awakening and the proto-moment of the three-year swim club, which would then become his incredible idea in 1937. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of this extraordinary story. Uh, this uh, school teacher, Soichi Sakamoto, uh, has this extraordinary vision. He can take these kids, the kids of the parents who are working in the sugarcane fields, uh, virtual slaves, um, known by not by their names, but by numbers. You can take them and in uh, three years make them Olympians. Uh, we uh, are hearing from Julie Checkaway, whose new book is The Three-Year Swim Club, the untold story of Maui's sugar ditch kids and their quest for Olympic glory. She'll be at the King's English Bookshop on Tuesday, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock for uh, a free reading and a signing of, of the book. We'll hear more about this following the break. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? 
Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Americans are economically anxious. They're worried about getting raises and paying the bills and getting by. How do we know? We asked for the first ever Marketplace Edison Research Economic Poll. But there is some optimism out there, too. Stuck forever? Probably not. Um, I'm pretty optimistic that someday I'll be able to pay back my student loans. How the economy feels to the people out there living in it all next week on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 1937, a school teacher on the island of Maui challenged a group of poverty-stricken sugar plantation kids to swim up, swim upstream against the current of their circumstance. And the goal was to become Olympians. The book is The Three-Year Swim Club. The author is Julie Checkaway. And we're talking with her on the hour today. She'll be at the King's English Bookshop tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. for reading uh, and signing. Julie Checkaway, I'd like to compare and contrast the, you know, the, the Maui of, I guess, myth and the, re, the relative circumstances here of these children. And you write that in 1937, the Depression was beginning to ease a little bit, at least for the rich. And so that's one world. That's kind of the, what we think of when we say Hawaii. In fact, uh, one of the uh, rich visitors uh, who, who visited, at, I guess, at this time really resonated with me, uh, you know, the child actress Shirley Temple, who was tooling around, playing her ukulele and having fun, I guess. And in the in the meantime, sugar plantations and a fairly hard life. It kind of goes against the, what we think of as the American dream. It does. And um, Hawaii, if we, if we look back, was a territory of the U.S. It had been a territory since the very late 19th century. Um, and it was not yet a state. But... It served, as some other resort islands did at that time, which were colonized by the U.S., um, it served as a resort paradise for celebrities from California. Um, Not only was Shirley Temple there, but um, all sorts of people. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille would go there, and he would sort of look on the beaches for possible movie stars. There were incredible um, sets and parties under torchlit, um, other torches and luau's and an incredible sense of the exotic. Steamship travel had made it possible for not just the very wealthy, but the moderately wealthy in the late 1930s to return to travel, which they had not been able to do. And the steamship uh, companies were, in fact, owned by the sugar plantations. So what you had, as you pointed out, Tom, what you had is this huge disparity. On the one hand, landing at the Aloha Pier, coming into Oahu, Honolulu, were these massive steamships, luxury liners, and off of them would step the Shirley Temples of the world, where, in fact, they would be met by... Duke Kahanamoku, who was a very famous swimmer and surfer at that time. But not far away, and just across um, from Oahu was Maui. And on Maui was the largest sugar plantation in all of Hawaii at that time, 30,000 acres. And the 30,000-acre plantation of the Hawaii Sugar and Commercial Company was home to 13 segregated camps, as I mentioned, where Japanese-Americans and some Filipino-Americans, some Chinese-Americans lived and worked in the fields for hours that were, they really were slave, uh, slave, slavery hours. There was nothing in the United States at that time that was as close to slavery as the lives that those people lived. Um, some of the children 
the children and the swimmers in the book had so little uh, that they, for breakfast, some of them, in families of 12, had to fight over a single Vienna sausage in a tin. Others had a hardtack cracker and maybe a little bit of chocolate and water for breakfast. Most went without lunch, and many of them sucked on sugarcane for strength. Their parents loved them and fed them as well as they could, but the wages were tremendously low. And what else, what made the life on the, on the plantation also akin to slavery was that the workers were paid each month, once a month, and their wages were no more than about 30 or $40 a dollar a day um, in most cases. And they would never get cash. <laughs> they were never paid in cash um, because in the month preceding their pay, they would work in the fields and then go to the plantation store where they would buy on credit. And by the end of the month, they would line up at uh, the plantation, the work camp pay stations, only to find when they came to the front of the line that they had overspent it was not atypical for a family to overspend so much, even on the most, on the smallest of things, bags of rice that were just sustenance, tea. Um, they were so in debt that there was no way that they would be able to leave the plantation until somehow they could even pay off that debt. So it was a closed circuit, the plantation an absolutely closed circuit. And if you were able to get out, you were lucky, smart, <laughs> strong, and um, incredibly fortunate. That's, that's it's just amazing. So these, these kids are you know, they're starting way behind the eight ball here. And I'm wondering, uh, so the three-year swim club, this is an amazing vision that uh, Soichi Sakamoto has. So the, the three years is they're three years out from the Olympics, right? 1940. Right, right. Um, in 1932, which was, uh, the Olympics were in Los Angeles. And so far before 37, Suichi Sakamoto saw in 1932, the Japanese from Japan come over to Los Angeles and beat the swim trunks off of every competitor, including American swimmers. Johnny Weissmuller, um, and others. And um, what he saw was that there was value in Japanese ethnicity, that Americans of Japanese ancestry need not be seen as weak, <laughs> need not be seen as anything but heroic. And so there was tremendous ethnic pride there wasn't an association with Japan necessarily. Certainly there was, in 32 a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the Japanese-American community on the West Coast in seeing the Japanese, you know, the, the people of the land of their ancestors, swim, you know, like lightning in the water. There was tremendous, tremendous ad admiration. The next set of Olympics was in thirty-six, where the Japanese did incredibly well. And then leading up to 40, it was incredibly exciting because the 1940 Olympics was to be held in Tokyo itself. What better place could there be to prove one's American citizenship, to prove one's value as a Japanese American, than to swim as a U.S. citizen on the American men's or women's Olympic swim team in the city of Tokyo. So the irony of it, the beauty of it, is the dream of that return, but as American citizens on Japanese land. Yeah, that's, that, is a, that is an amazing vision. So, uh, Mr. Sakamoto, you know, not a very good swimmer. You've already told the story <laughs> of his Eagle Scout qualification, just barely made it. Um, you know, there's, there's no pool. There's ditches, okay. um, dirty ditches at that. Um, so how does he get the kids involved? Uh, 
And and uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about his methods. He was he was ahead of his time. Certainly, when he first began um, in the ditches, he didn't know at all what he was doing um, because he had basic what he called survival swimming. He could do a little side stroke. He encouraged the kids first to to float on their backs, uh, to dunk their heads underwater until they were unafraid. And the water was, as you said, Tom, incredibly dirty. It was filled with um, detritus, with rubbish, with um, chickens that came downstream, dead chickens, cows, whole cows that had fallen into uh, the ditches flying downstream. And so one had to be very careful not to be knocked out um, in the water. Sakamoto encouraged the kids to go underwater, to float in it, and then he began to encourage them to do what he called speed floating. He didn't have another name for it. He called it speed floating, and that was swimming. It was to get on their stomachs and wheel their arms around, kick their legs, and move forward. That was swimming. That's all he knew. Over time, he began to perfect his methods, um, get them to, uh, to speed float faster, and he also entered the kids in uh, an annual race that was held in the single Howley or White Pool uh, annually. The race was the Maui Public School um, Association League race, and it was, it was, it was island-wide. It was the only time the kids had a chance to swim in the pool. They didn't get to practice in that pool. They could only race. And the Howleys, um, uh, the people in the plantation, would drain the pool the next day and clean it. So it was the one time of year the Japanese-American kids could swim. They could show their swim prowess. And then, of course, the pool had to be cleaned because they were Japanese-American. What happened was remarkable. In the beginning, the kids were doing this speed floating, and which was, you know, uh, basically a, a, a messy, messy freestyle stroke. And they started to be pretty fast. And in the next year, they began to be faster. And then in the next year, Sakamoto began to realize he needed to strengthen the kids. Because they were physically starving, he fed them. And because they hadn't the muscles uh, to beat the big white kids, he began to open the valve on the ditch and tell the kids to swim against the literal current of the ditch. They would swim up against the current, and then with assistance of the current, they would turn around and swim back toward him on the bridge where he stood. Up against the current and back down again. Today, we have machines <laughs> that do this. We have um, small pools in which Olympic swimmers um, and competitive swimmers practice. But Suichi Sakamoto made use first of the ditch, and he indeed strengthened the children. He strengthened them, strengthened them to the point that they began to win uh, every meet, every meet against the Hollies, and it became very clear that and very embarrassing to the white population on Maui, embarrassing to an extraordinary degree that there was no pool for these kids. And in 1936, the plantation did build a pool for them. At that time, Sakamoto really began to take off in his ideas. He was able to build machines for the children. He would gather rubber and he would gather discarded rail car wheels and discarded rope and discarded buckets and pails and um, rods. And he fashioned poor men's weight machines and resistance machines, arm uh, strengthening machines using pulleys against a wall. He cut out of board kickboards very rough kickboard, splintery, and he had the kids use those. He salvaged all sorts of um, inner tubes, patched them, filled them up. He had the kids tie their legs, their ankles, to the inner tubes. 
he had the group of kids <laughs> grab onto the inner tube at one end of the pool and had the swimmer try to swim forward and build his or her arms. So his innovations continued throughout his career, but they are unknown and unacknowledged, really, by the larger swim community. Because his contributions never made it to the history books, very few people knew what he had done. These were unheard of machines, some of them. And he also was very, very certain that the power of a swimmer wasn't as conventional wisdom had it in a swimmer's legs, in the kick or the power of the legs, but rather the power of propulsion for a swimmer was in his or her arms in the stroke. And this, in fact, is scientifically true. Um, the percentage of power that a swimmer has is in the stroke, the larger percentage. And he began to perfect stroke. There was no one in the world who was doing stroke technique in 1936, 1937. No one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad his story is, is coming back. Let's take another break. When we come back more with Julie Checkaway on her book, The Three-Year Swim Club. Uh, she is appearing uh, tomorrow evening at the King's English Bookshop, an opportunity if you're going to be in the Salt Lake City area to meet with Julie Checkaway and hear from, uh, from the book. That's at 7 p.m. tomorrow evening. More following the break. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. One of the most powerful women in real estate, Marianne Gilmartin, talks about how she found her calling in a field long dominated by men. It was the sheer excitement of realizing that at the time, at 20 years of age, you'd be sitting in a room talking about what should happen to the west side of Manhattan. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. From UPR's events calendar, this is a few of next week's coming events. Monday, October 26th, Piers Egyptian Theatre in Ogden will present Ogden Pals and Standout Show, an inspirational dance show with special needs performers. Wednesday, October 28th, Southern Utah University's Symphony Orchestra will perform its annual autumn concert at the Heritage Center Theatre in Cedar City. And Thursday, October 29th, the Orem Public Library will be presenting Spooky Salt Lake Tales, a spooky storytelling presentation by local artist and storyteller Sherry Davis. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing the very interesting story of the three-year swim club. Subtitle of the book by Julie Chekaway is The Untold Story of Maui Sugar Ditch Kids and Their Quest for Olympic Glory. In spite of everything, including virulent anti-Japanese sentiment of the late 1930s, in their first year, the children outraced Olympic athletes twice their size. In the second year, they were national and international champs, shattering American and world records, making headlines. In the third year, they'd be declared the greatest swimmers in the world, but they'd also face their greatest obstacles, the dawning of the World War and cancellation of the Games. And uh, by 1948, they'd have one last chance for Olympic glory. We're talking with Julie Checkaway. She'll be at the King's English Bookshop Tuesday evening, tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. And we have another uh, 10 minutes or 15 minutes with Julie uh, Checkaway. Uh, I wonder, Julie Checkaway, if you talk about uh, Soichi Sakamoto, their, their coaches, uh, I guess his, his inspirational methods, his mental methods, one thing he had them repeat was, well, he'd ask him a question, right? Do you want to be mm-hmm. an Olympian? Do you, do you want to be a champion? And the, the key was that word want, which he, I guess he didn't much like that word want. You, you have to, you have to be it. You have to become it, not want it. That's absolutely true. He was, a, he was quite rigid in the ways that he taught and coached the kids. He had no role model except for the Boy Scouts. <laughs> and so a lot of what he adapted as his um, way of thinking, his philosophy, came in part from his training as a Boy Scout. And he was a Boy Scout uh, troop leader as well. So the Boy Scouts, if you take a look back, um, if you remember your own scouting experience, if you had one, um, scouting was about self-reliance. Scouting was about discipline. Scouting was about mastering skills that you had no right to master, (laughs) whether it was 
forging, um, you know, forging something in the fire, you know, forging iron, if it was, you know, orienteering, you know, figure it out for yourself, my lad, was um, one of the mottos, but um, be prepared eventually became one of the mottos. So the rigidity, if you will, while the, although there was also pleasure in scouting, and the rules for clean living very much influenced Suichi Sakamoto as he developed his ideas for what had to happen in the club. No drinking, no smoking, no swearing, no romances. It was too diverting. Um, practice every single day, twice a day, sometimes three times a day. And this was completely against conventional wisdom Nobody but nobody believed that it was healthy for anyone to exercise, any athlete to exercise with that rigor. His program was also influenced, I believe, by a Japanese sense of Bushido. Um, Bushido is discipline. Um, Someone who's Bushido is a disciplinarian. And so I think he combined these extraordinary philosophies and traditions, American Boy Scouting, and at the same time, which which was also deeply patriotic, with this Bushido impulse, this Japanese impulse, and together this Japanese-American program was all about being a champion, not wishing, but every day waking up and living the life of a champion. And that was very much what he believed, that every day was a choice. Every stroke in the water was a choice. Waking up and coming to practice was a choice. And in order, as Bill Smith, one of his Hawaiian swimmers, once said to me, in order to succeed and reach one's goals, there was no question that one had to make sacrifices of all kinds. And yet there's a pulse pounding scene in the book. I don't want to give too much away, but, but, <laughs> but by, but so of course the, uh, the 40 games were canceled essentially. They had kind of a, <laughs> I don't know, a very pared down version in London. Right. But, uh, so by 1948, uh, Bill Smith is carrying on his shoulders, the, you know, the, the dreams of a lot of people. Right. And, and Bill Smith was largely full-blooded Hawaiian, so he doesn't he didn't look like a Bill Smith. <laughs> right. He didn't look like uh, so Bill Smith was very dark skinned, fit in with the the crowd of the uh three SM club. And for a number of reasons he survived uh World War Two uh by not having to serve as most of his Japanese American uh teammates in the three YSC did in Europe. He did not serve in Europe under the conditions that they did. They served in the bloodiest battalion of in American history, in the history of World War Two and American history to that time, the four forty second and one hundredth battalions. Um, the most decorated battalion, segregated battalion that saved, in fact, um, the the rear ends, if you will, <laughs> of many, many, um, an enlisted soldier in Europe, in the European theater. So Bill Smith in 1948 actually was still like the three-year swim club members, the Japanese-American members, considered to be an old man because he wasn't in his teens. Um, and he was, in fact, in his late 20s. In 1948, when finally the games resumed for the first time since 1936 in London at the London Austerity Games, you're exactly right. Bill Smith had to carry the torch for his teammates and for Coach Sakamoto in attempting and fulfilling the dream of Olympics first, Olympics always, which was the motto of the three-year swim club. Mm. The three-year swim club was supposed to meet its goal in three years, and yet it took far more, far many more years than that for it to come true. But no one in that club gave up, and Bill Smith did carry the torch for all of them. You talked to uh, some of the 
some of the the kids who are you know now in their nineties, I guess. What was is there a theme? What what did being in the three year swim club do for them? Oh, it was remarkable. I spent a lot of time in Hawaii. There was no way that I could have written this book without diving not only into archival materials, but in traveling and in visiting and talking story, as it's called on Hawaii, with the swimmers themselves. So I first sought out the eldest swimmers. I mean, it was a practical concern. I wanted to reach them uh, before they might disappear from, from the earth. So when I reached out to them, and they were in their 90s, um, the, the significant theme, the thread that ran through each of the stories that the women and men told me about the Three Year Swim Club was this, that Coach Sakamoto saved their lives, that he literally saved their lives, not only by teaching them to swim, but by teaching them hygiene, by teaching them and inculcating in them an American dream that he felt that they had a right to, that they deserved to have access to. He taught them that swimming would lead them to go to college, that if they swam hard enough and fast enough, they could receive scholarships and go to college and better themselves, leave the island where they had been essentially imprisoned with their parents, where they too were to enter the cane fields, where they too were to have a life in a closed circuit. The message was from every, every person, coach saved me. Hmm. And uh, I'm glad the story is, is, is getting out. Their story, of course, you're privileged to tell it. Oh, tremendously privileged. I'm honored to tell it. I, I will say one thing. Someone asked me, um, how did you gain permission to tell this story? And I said, I never gained permission. I sat around for a long time with the swimmers, listening. And then instead of asking for permission to tell the story, I asked for their forgiveness. Okay. <laughs> and I said, if I tell this story, um, and you've been generous in sharing this with me, I ask you to forgive me for the mistakes that I will make in being an outsider and telling it, because I will make mistakes. Um, I'm not you. I don't own this story. It is absolutely yours, and I ask for your forgiveness now, and I ask for your forgiveness when you see it in print. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are some other extraordinary scenes in the book, of course, you have to read it. Uh, one that really touched me was uh, one of these original swimmers, when he was older, uh, accomplished a great feat, a, a channel swim. Mm. out there just a wonderful passage in the book and he he you write he felt like there were children swimming with him Kiyo Nakama was from the very beginning the star of the three-year swim club he in 1937 was the most promising of all the swimmers and also the most starving and weak of all the swimmers but in 37 he had beaten um, Olympian Ralph Gilman and Nakama never had a chance to go to the London Olympics. In the, when he, at the age of 41, in the 60s, he got it in mind that he wanted to be the first person to cross the Molokai Channel. And this was a 15 and, uh, 15 and a quarter hour swim in the dark with jellyfish stinging you, men of war, um, with salt you know, bloating your eyes, um, the kinds of things that Diana, Diana Nyad experienced, that any channel swimmer experienced. He was the first person to do this. And in doing it, he, in my mind, in my mind, was doing it as much as Bill Smith carried the torch for the three-year swim club. Kiyo Nakama, in, at the age of 41, uh, swam the channel. And for me, the swimming of the channel was more significant even than the two gold medals that Bill Smith won. 
in London in 1948. The message of the book is, and the message of the swimmers, as I began to understand it, wasn't that they were Olympians or that they qualified for the Olympics. But in the face of tremendous hardship, in the face of every wall they hit, in the face of the forces of history that stopped them from their original dream, from achieving their original dream, they went on to do other things. Having served in the 442nd, having served in the 100th, and coming back alive, all of Sakamoto's swimmers returned miraculously alive. Having gone on to become not just teachers and coaches of swimming, of high school, but in the case of Kiyonakama, he went on to become an influential congressman in Hawaii, to become a, a game changer in terms of the lives of Japanese Americans. I see that swimming of the Molokai Channel as a, the swim that all the children took through history, from the beginning of the three-year swim club throughout their lives against the forces and the current of their circumstance, starting in the ditch, then in the open sea of American culture, which hadn't accepted them, coming into shore together as, an, as, as a race and as citizens of the United States. Uh, that's a great way to uh, end the conversation. We're out of time. The book is The Three-Year Swim Club, the untold story of Maui Sugar Ditch Kids and their quest for Olympic glory. The author is uh, Salt Lake City-based uh, author Julie Checkaway, and she'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. for reading and uh, and signing. Uh, very inspirational story, uh, great story. Are you on to something next? Or is I cannot move off of this story. I am so thrilled with the fact that the book is out, that it's in the hands not only of the swimmers, but also in the hands of readers. And I will spend as much time and energy as I can sharing this story for as long as I can until as many people know it. And I don't foresee moving on just yet because I'm, I'm thrilled. I just want to share uh, the story and, and sort of tell, shout the story from the tops of the mountains about this incredible group of people and their coach. Well, it's very, very worth telling. And uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, Waiting for Hockney. People have to check that out. Very interesting film. Uh, Julie Checkaway, the filmmaker there. Uh, Julie Checkaway, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Ah, wonderful questions. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure to be on the radio with you. Thank you. I hope you join me tomorrow. We'll be talking with Wyoming author Craig Johnson. He's author of the Walt Longmire series, and he's coming to Utah. Uh, his new book is Wait for Signs. Uh, we'll be talking with Craig Johnson tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hi, I'm Rue Mahoney from Stokes Nature Center. As the mountains take on hues of scarlet golden russet, many Utahns might be looking eagerly toward the coming months when those slopes will be blanketed in white. The Utah ski industry nurtures a whopping annual income of about $800 million. It's no surprise, therefore, that the state claims to have the greatest snow on Earth. In fact, the state of Utah managed to make their slogan a federal trademark in 1995 after winning a lawsuit brought by the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus Group, who felt the catchy marketing phrase might be confused with their slogan, The Greatest Show on Earth. The trademark must have worked, because Utah draws so many visitors to its slopes it racks up about 4 million skier days annually. But disregard plenty of evidence that we do indeed draw a crowd and the statement is pretty subjective. So what's the science behind our legendary powder? The ideal condition skiers hope for is a deep, fluffy snow that creates the illusion of bottomless powder. And finding it is a bit like the Goldilocks story. Too wet and you bog down. Too dry and there's not enough body to create a floating sensation beneath the ski. If the terrain is too steep, the powder won't stick. And if it's not steep enough, you can't build sufficient momentum to glide over the top. To get to the bottom of why Utah's snow is just right, we actually have to look even further westward toward the slow, warm waters of the North Pacific Current. As water-laden clouds move inland, snow first falls over the Cascades in the north and the Sierra Nevadas further south, with an average moisture content of 12%. 
even in areas like Washington's Mount Baker, where annual snowfall comes in greater quantities than Utah, the moister maritime snow creates a heavy base that bogs down skis. By the time these winter storms cross the Great Basin and reach the skiers' mecca of Alta and the Wasatch Range, the moisture content will have decreased to about 8.5%. And that seems to be the sweet spot. The moisture content of Utah's intermountain snow is just enough that powder from our first storms settles into a soft but voluminous base. As winter progresses, fresh snow falls in a cold and mostly arid environment, forming very fine symmetrical crystals called dendrites. The microscopic structure of dendrites allows them to accumulate in well-ventilated, incompact drifts, much like the puffy down in your favorite pillow or ski jacket. And perfect powder isn't the only advantage Utah ski resorts have over their neighbors. Our mountainous topography, with its wealth of winding canyons, means we have an abundance of slopes well protected from strong winds, which could compact or carry away fresh snowfall. And while so many cold and overcast days might get you down, it also protects our top powder from radiation and air mass effect, which can create a crust along the surface. And that means our freshly fallen powder sticks around for longer. So consider that Utah offers 26,000 acres of mountain, blanketed in more than 500 annual inches of perfect intermountain snow, and it's no wonder we enjoy five times the number of powder days as our neighbors. The greatest snow on Earth starts sounding a lot less subjective and more like truth. In fact, you might just be tempted to make like Goldilocks and make yourself at home. For Wild About Utah and Stokes Nature Center, I'm Rue Mahoney. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 